This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Ontario drivers pay some of the highest prices for auto insurance, despite the fact that we are some of the safest drivers. Well, yesterday, NDP leader Andrea Horvath promised to lower premiums by a whopping 40% if she's elected, and she would do that by banning auto insurance rate increases for 18 months while an expert commission would investigate and recommend a new system, either a public or partially public system or major reforms to the private system. Well, remember when Kathleen Wynne was premier? Andrea Horvath agreed to support that minority government because of a promise of a much more modest reduction, 15%. And after failing to come anywhere near it, Wynne shrugged off her her original pledge as a stretch goal. Well, what is the problem with trying to do something about auto insurance? A 2017 study by insurance expert David Marshall, which was done for the Liberal government, the previous one, found that Ontario drivers were paying 55% more than the Canadian average. The average annual rate in Quebec, for instance, is $851. In Ontario, it's $1,655. So what do you think? What do you think about your premiums? And there have been instances where they've said, okay, we're lowering your premiums, but you're getting less coverage and you have to pay extra if you want some coverage. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. So the big question is how realistic is any kind of promise like this? I'm joined by Ta- Tom Rakasevich, who is running for re-election as uh, an Ontario NDP MPP in the riding of Humber River Black Creek, and Ellen Roseman, a consumer advocate and journalist. Hello and welcome to you both. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, so good to be back. Okay. Hey, Ellen, how are you? Good. How are you? Great, great. Okay, so let's begin with Tom. So, is uh, is this how is this realistic? This proposal, it is, it is absolutely realistic. And right off the top, um, I think you really set forth why it's realistic. Compare Ontario to other provinces. We have some of the safest drivers, some of the lowest per capita accidents, and we're paying more than fifty percent more than other provinces. And in fact, we are paying some of the highest rates in the entire continent. And I think this pandemic was the breaking point where the industry made almost $4 billion in profits while cars were parked at home. And the government basically went out there and defended them in the media and said it was okay and let them keep the windfall. We need bold action. A 40% reduction is a bold target that we will achieve with a commission that we're going to set up with experts. And in addition to that, and one thing that was missed, is that we will end postal code discrimination uh, in the GTA. We'll, we'll get to that. Ellen, do you think this promise is something that could actually happen? I don't know. Uh, we have to go back to uh, Bob Ray when he was the NDP Premier of Ontario. He uh, was interested in setting up a, uh, a government system as they have in several Western provinces and uh, like Quebec has a semi-public, semi-private system. And after a lot of consultation, decided not to go ahead with it. It's a huge project in a big province like Ontario. And uh, I think that's what would be needed. Uh, as well as the cost of insurance, we also have to look at the benefits of insurance. And in the past number of years, the government has allowed insurance companies to cut back on the accident benefits they provide when somebody is hurt uh, in an accident. And uh, what people find is that there is a small minimum that they get uh, automatically if they're injured, but to get higher coverage, they usually have to hire a lawyer and go to court. 
And this is unfair. Most people who've been in an auto accident are disabled. Uh, they have trouble uh, just going to work. They have, uh, they don't have the money to put up front for a lawyer, so they get a contingency lawyer, and the courts are backed up these days because of COVID. So it's not realistic, and we have – that's sort of the invisible part of car insurance. Not only are we paying more, but we're getting less for the car insurance we have. And uh, I think that the system does need a re- overhaul and a rethink, and it would be great if um, – you know, if somebody did it, but I don't know about the 40% amount, uh, that would be probably not uh, something that you could do right away. It might happen over a number of years. Well, according to the report by David Marshall, uh, one of the big problems is exactly that with the way our so-called no-fault system works, people have to sue their own insurance companies. And they have to get their own lawyers and that a lot of the money that ends up being paid out, uh, it goes to the lawyers. Yeah. And um, there's also a tribunal where you can go if you're unhappy. Uh, the um, License Appeal Tribunal, what's it called? The LIT? LIT? Anyway, uh, that's also intimidating for consumers. Most of us really don't want to use the legal system if we possibly can, because it's just drawn out and we know that uh, the insurance companies can afford the best lawyers and we're often going there, you know, on our own, defending ourselves or with a paralegal or something like that. So there should be a way to uh, increase the accident benefits. The insurance companies are always saying it's too expensive because of fraud. And they're always talking about, you know, uh, health clinics that are carrying out unnecessary tests. But the consumer advocates say that there's a certain amount of fraud, too, in the way the insurance uh, system handles it, because when you uh, when they're getting experts to testify on the uh, health uh, level that you're having, you know, whether you're seriously uh, disabled or if you're impersonating somebody who's seriously disabled, they will get so-called hired guns who are experts who work only for the insurance companies, medical professionals who only work for the insurance company. So naturally, because that's where their money's coming from, they will give uh, the kind of report that the insurance companies are hoping to get from them. Uh, Tom, what about the power of uh, the insurance lobby? And they're supposed to be independent. Well, the Conservative government and the Liberal government before them have always been very cozy with this industry. Uh, During this pandemic, as I said uh, right off the top, uh, we saw a reduction in accidents let's say in Toronto, of almost 80% and across the province of over 70%. And at the time, I called for a 50% reduction during the beginning of the pandemic to account for this. And the the Conservative government fought tooth and nail. They just read out insurance talking points. Um, It's obvious that they have a very relationship with the insurance industry. And in the end, we did not see the savings that drivers in Ontario deserved. Instead, we were just taken for a ride. So absolutely, the lobby is very powerful when it comes to talking to this government. But we're here for the driver. Uh, you know, uh, Ellen was talking about benefits for people who are injured in accidents. And there's also the issue of when you're not injured, where when your car is injured. And I have this story that happened to my husband that I think uh, sort of crystallizes it. He has a very nice car, or in the previous car, actually, he had a bike rack on it, and the bike rack fell off the car, and at first he assumed it it had, like, damages you could barely see on the car. He assumed he was going to have to cover it. He went to a a mechanic or a a body shop that specializes in this type of car, and they sort of nod, nod, wink, 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 for you, we'll do it for 1800 bucks. He then found out that it was actually could be covered by insurance. Uh, anyway, the bill magically inflated to $8,000. Oh. <laughs> so Look, go ahead, Tom. I, I don't know if, you know, if the exceptions make the rules. Like, I, I think that um, we do pay the highest rates across the entire continent. I don't think that this is an issue that's experienced by us more than anywhere else in North America. And that being said, we know that the industry, despite stories like that, made almost $4 billion of profits during the pandemic. And I think it's time for drivers to get a government that's going to fight for them and put them first and not just listen to the insurance company and allow them to continue to make more and more money while people 
are, are struggling in an affordability crisis in many different ways, but certainly when it comes to auto insurance, we are getting gouged. Anyone can tell you that here. And when you look at neighboring provinces, they pay 50% less or more. And we've known this for years, and it's time for bold action. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Uh, Tom, you were mentioning what is referred to as postal code discrimination, and uh, to a certain extent, your rates are determined by where you live and the cost of, it's not how good a driver you are, but if there are more collisions and more claims in your area, well, you're going to pay more, and uh, the, the poster area for this, of course, is Brampton. Let's hear from Dave and Lindsay. Hi, Dave. Hello, how you doing? Fine, how are you? Go ahead. Yeah, listen, I gotta tell you, this thing here, me being a five-star uh, driver, and being hit with the fact of where I live depends upon how much I pay, is absolutely wrong. I should be, pay- I should be paying on whether or not I have had claims or not. Not that where I live depends upon where the probability of me getting into an accident. So I I really think that this whole thing to deal with postal codes is absolutely wrong. And moreover, it is just another way for the insurance company to gouge people. And that's what they're doing. They're uh, gouging you, and it's terrible. And it's you're you're in Lindsay. Is that an area that pays more? Uh, no, uh, it doesn't. But I used to live in Brampton. Oh, I see. Okay. And 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 the drop from one to another was substantial. And oh. that's my point. My point is, I was paying. I, I uh, you know I've been driving for forty four years. I have never had an accident, but I pay insurance, so I've never had a claim. In the meantime, I paid a higher premium for where I lived, and that was wrong. Hmm. Okay, Dave, thanks for that. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, we'll go to Bill in Toronto. You have the opposite view of that. I do. I mean, th- these people are actuaries. They basically just do a bunch of math and figure it out, and, and that's the way it works. So postal codes, if you live in an area where they're going to get really dinged, and I kind of agree with it. It's like if you're a smoker and you're applying for insurance, well, you're placed into a high-risk group. If you're living in a certain area that's a high-risk group, well, then, you know, and it's unfortunate if you're a good driver. But the other thing with the insurance companies ripping us off, we've got the same insurance companies across Canada. So if they're, if they're not ripping off Quebec, why would they be ripping off Ontario? And the other thing, as far as one of your guests said about rebates, my insurance company actually gave me at least one rebate. I'm thinking it might be two. And they were like substantial, about 300 bucks when the COVID uh, was at its peak. Uh, yeah. So driving less. So, you know, I've been treated fairly. And as a matter of fact, I had an incident where my dog broke a sliding glass door in the house. And the insurance company waived the deductible because they said I was at a long time good customer. So I really have no complaints with the insurance company. Okay, well, uh, Bill, I suspect you might be in a minority, but thanks for your call. Okay. Uh, Ellen, what do you say to Bill that, uh, you know, it's uh, I guess he's comparing it to secondhand smoke. If you live in a bad neighborhood, tough. Yeah, with insurance, discrimination is always legal because that's how they determine the rates. They they figure out who's causing uh, higher uh, accidents or higher claims. And then if you're in that group, for whatever reason, and with insurance, it's postal code, but with, you know, there's other kinds of things too, um, you get charged for it. People get upset when they move sometimes just a block or two away, and then all of a sudden they're in a different area, and then their insurance rates drop. It doesn't seem fair to them. One of the interesting trends that is happening, and it has its pros and cons, is instead of charging you by the amount of accidents and car thefts where you live, some companies are saying that they will charge you based on your usage, which means how many miles you drive and how good a driver you are. How do they know how good a driver you are? They ask you to set up something which they call telematics, which is taking your phone and uh, with an app, they can follow you while you're driving. 
and they can see how much you're braking, how, how, if you're going above the speed limit. There's a whole variety of things that they use. And if you show that you're doing all the right things, they will give you a discount on your insurance up to about 20 or 25% in the following year. When it first came out back in 2013, and it wasn't an app, it was more like a machine that you put in your car, um, Desjardins, which was the one that introduced it in Ontario, said, your insurance can only go down and it will never go up. Well, of course, <laughs> and many you... more companies are in it. Now they're saying if they can see that you're a reckless driver, they're going to raise it based on this uh, usage-based insurance, UBB, they call it. And that means that, you know, a, a lot of people are going to be against it. And also, they're a little worried about giving all this data to an insurance company. They're kind of like driving uh, with, uh, 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 you're driving with somebody on your shoulder as you go around. And how do you know their data is accurate? How do you know it won't be hacked? So there's a lot of debate about that. But at least it's taking away a bit of the emphasis on just where you live. Okay, well, you have to agree to that. Uh, I think yes, it's, you do, it's you giving very powerful companies. It, and then you have to take the risk that maybe your insurance will go up instead of down if you do it. Well, it, it's it's not just that. What are they going to do with that data? Are they going to sell it and make even more money? Exactly. And maybe it will come up in a divorce case or something like that. Or, you know, it might be used for other purposes that you never imagined. Tom, what do you make of that? Do you have any uh, policy on those things? Well, you know, we are going to strike a commission and we're going to look at the system as a whole and we're going to find a better system to achieve the savings that that all drivers deserve in the province. But I just want to go back to what uh, the second caller had said. Um, Auto insurance postal discrimination is real. Just because you live in a particular area does not make you a more at-risk driver. I have seniors in my community at the Northwest Toronto uh, riding where they have impeccable driving records. They're driving around a 20-year-old vehicle that's been immaculately kept with no kilometers on it. And the value, their premiums are higher than the resale value of their car on a yearly basis. And so this is something that we have a system right now that it's not about that there are more accidents where you live. If, if you, a driver in a particular neighborhood, has an accident 500 kilometers away, that accident is attached to their premium, which is attached to their neighbor's premium. It's almost like saying that your next door neighbor, to use his uh, analogy, it's that, that your health insurance goes up because your next door neighbor is a smoker and not you. It just, it, it has to stop. And this is something that the NDP championed, even under the Liberal government, and the, and the Liberal government at the time voted against it and stopped it. And the Conservative government has no willingness to, to stop postal code discrimination. So this is what we're fighting for. And we have residents, not just in Brampton, but in northwest Toronto, Scarborough, and other neighborhoods, Vaughan, that are getting gouged because of where they live. And they are clean, uh, uh, safe drivers with clean driving records, and they are getting gouged. And it has to stop. Okay. Uh, I want to give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from you. Have your auto insurance premiums gone up lately? Have they gone down lately? What is it based on? And also... Uh, is this something you're concerned about, and might it even be a ballot question for you? What do you think of the NDP promise? I mean, it's a it's a heck of a promise that they're going to lower rates by 40%. That is fairly huge. So give us a shout. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Ellen... Do you have any sense, any theory, why is it that uh, a public system or partially public systems can work in other provinces like BC, like Manitoba, and, and why does it seem so hard here? Well, if the government is the one that is creating the rates, uh, then they will uh, probably be a bit more... Um, uh, mindful of, you know, public support and trying to make them fair. In Ontario, we've got many, many car insurance companies. They have to submit their rates to a regulator called Financial Services uh, Regulatory Authority, FISRA. And usually the rates get seem to get approved, more or less. It's kind of an opaque system. We're not sure what happens and how much uh, wear and tear in terms of tugging on, you know, insurance companies to lower the rates. So they just seem to get automatic approval of the new rates. And yes, you can shop around, 
But some people are reluctant to shop around because sometimes you have like the the uh, the guy who is happy with his insurance says, if you're a longtime customer, you get better uh, consideration when you have a claim. So and and sometimes you have a first accident forgiveness on your uh, policy, which is excellent. So if if you have an at fault accident, they will uh, they will not uh, you know give you that automatic spike that happens. Uh, and if you switch, you might lose that first accident forgiveness. So there, there are a number of reasons why people don't like to switch. A lot of people don't even know what they have on their policy. I think for many people, the best thing to do is call their company and go through all the different kinds of coverage you have. This is a good thing to do before renewal time and just say, do I need this? Uh, can I get rid of it? You know, for an older car, that older couple who are paying so much, um, maybe they can get rid of collision insurance if their car is 15 years old. Maybe they, you know, they don't have to have collision insurance anymore. That's not mandatory. Uh, or the amount of uh, kilometers driven every year, the right amount. If it's too high, you can lower it. You can change the deductible. If you have a higher deductible, which means you pay more out of pocket if you're in an accident, uh, that can lower your premium rate. And for many people who've never had accidents, they're okay with the lower, uh, higher deductible. So uh, you can do that. Or if you have a broker, uh, go to a broker and see if they can help you shop around because shopping around is never that easy. So um, go to an insurance broker and see if they can lower your rate with uh, with a, a good, you know, comparison of different rates around. I'm not saying that the system is great, but there are a few things consumers can do in the meantime. Okay, let's take a call from Rick in Wasega Beach. Hi, Rick. Hi there, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Um, I'm I would like to see rates go down like everybody else. I'd like to see gas prices go down. But when it comes to uh, arguments that uh, no fault has caused this uh, increase in insurance costs, you have to remember that it was Bob Ray's NDP who vowed to get rid of all insurance companies in this province, and they would lower all the rates, let alone 40%. Uh, they brought in no fault. So if you don't like it, blame the NDP. <laughs> Uh, okay. Thanks for that, Rick. Uh, so it, it was actually, it was actually the liberal government before them, um, that brought that in and it, and, and it happened during the tenure of, uh, of that premier who went on to become the federal leader of the liberal party of Canada. So just an interesting thing to note, but, uh, just wanted to mention that clarify, but it was the government before that, uh, did no fault and it was, and it was implemented afterwards. It was it was the Peterson government then. Yes. Well, yeah, and there was a, a coalition kind of thing happening. But uh, so the way you see it, Tom, is it our no fault system that makes it so much worse here than in other provinces? Well, a lot of provinces have no fault already. I don't think that was part of it. Uh, it might have been a small part, but I think it's just the way the insurance companies here are able to uh, go to the government, get the rate increases they want, and at the same time often to get the benefit reductions they want. So they, uh, there's no real regulatory, uh, you know, uh, uh, champion of consumers. Uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. Again, consider that during this pandemic, there was over a 70% reduction in accidents. That means that claims were far, 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 far less. And the insurance companies, the government had the ability to force the insurers, because they approve the rates, to pass on those deserved savings to drivers. But instead, they let these insurers pocket up to $4 billion, almost $4 billion in savings during that period of time, while drivers continue to get gouged in Ontario and pay the highest, some of the highest rates in the entire continent. It is within the ability of the government to reduce these rates, and it's just unfortunate that the, this current government and the, well, and the one prior to it did not take the action. And that's why we're being bold because drivers deserve respect. They've been taken for a ride, not just during the pandemic, but before. And we need to end the gouging that's happening in Ontario for Ontario drivers. Let's hear from Cheryl in Thornhill. Hello, Cheryl. Hi, good, good afternoon. I'm just calling about the um, postal code uh, situation that I bought a new car in 2020 and when about it, it was actually it was originally a lease for a year, but it was an HRV, Honda HRV, and it had all these safety features on it. And the salesman even I said, I guess my insurance rates will go up, and he said they should go down because of the safety 
issues because I had an old car. When, of course, when I go to my insurance company, it went up. And then it went up in 2021, and then they want to, they put it up again this year. And I said, why is it going up? I've never had a claim or anything like that. And she said, well, your car is very popular in your area. And there's been a lot of accidents. And I said, so I'm paying for other people's accidents. And she just kept repeating the same thing. She wouldn't answer the question, which, of course, was the answer. And it's just crazy. I'm... 74, I'm retired. I'm not driving back and forth to work. You know, I don't put a lot of kilometers on my car. And it was a ripoff. So I'm now looking for another insurance company, but I have my house insurance on with it. And I'll get a lower rate on one thing, and then the other one goes up more. Well, you, you, you hit on it, Cheryl. Thanks for your call. I get the frustration. I mean, all of this, uh, bundling, whether it's here or yesterday, Ellen, we were talking about cell phone rates. Once you get in with the bundling, it, it becomes harder to move and, and there are consequences. It's one thing or another. Yes. Also, you have to make sure that if you do bundle, that you tell your insurance company you're bundling and you want a bundling discount. I used to get complaints from people who just assumed that they would get that discount, but you have to emphasize it. I just, just to the last caller, um, Libby, you know, you, if you, you, so for most people, having a car, having a vehicle is a reality in Ontario. You have to have a vehicle in many, many places. And so you're forced to have to do business with the insurance industry, but there's no transparency. So like the previous caller, you have questions and they just go back to repeated taglines to tell you why that you're being gouged or why you're overpaying, but there's no transparency. And in fact, under the, the conservative government, I put in a bill that I worked on with an economist that you probably all know, Mr. Lazar. And uh, we talked about bringing transparency because if we're forced to do business with these companies, let's see what's really going on behind the scenes. And the conservative government voted against it. So it's just, you ask why these things don't get implemented when you have governments like the conservatives and liberals before them that are so friendly to the insurance industry. It's no wonder they get away with whatever they ask. Okay, uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. People, uh, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. We can take this up again. Right now, we're taking a very quick break. And on the other side of it, we have Mayor John Tory. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. In the meantime, thank you so much, Tom Rakasevich and Ellen Roseman. Thank you, Libby, and thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you for Great, all your work Tom. and your advocacy for consumers. Great discussion. Okay, yeah, break time. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now I'd like to welcome Mayor John Tory, who joins us from time to time for an update. It's been a while. We're now in the midst of a provincial election campaign. The municipal elections are on the horizon. Mayor, you're running again. So this is a great time to chat. Welcome. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Libby. Okay, so first, there is breaking news affecting our neighborhood, and we just learned that the city will be hiring private security to try to prevent encampments, the illegal tent cities, from taking hold in our parks. That's Lamport Stadium, which is just down the street here, Trinity Bellwoods Park, and other locations. So, uh, first of all, I have to say, I know that advocates don't like this, but uh, those of us who live and work here actually are welcoming this. Well, first, I should say uh, that, you know, we're continuing to make every possible effort with with regard to people experiencing homelessness to find them a safe place to live. And the notion that we would have security guards, we have security guards in lots of places. Um, But the notion that we might have them in order to make sure that our parks are not used uh, for encampments and that they are kept safe and for the use of people. I mean, I'd like, you know, when you mention all these elections that are on, I think that's what this is really all about. It's about politics, because, you know, I, I would challenge any of the people who are questioning this to explain to the seniors you know, who, who would lose their programs in the parks and who did in previous years, or explain to the camps for kids that can't go forward uh, because of, uh, you know, because of the uh, existence of encampments, uh, or just explain to families that want to use these parks, uh, you know, how it is that other people uh, seem to have a right to have, have rights that are, that are, you know, superior to theirs. Parks are for everybody, and we are making a huge effort as a city uh, to uh, give people safe indoor shelter, 
Uh, and we work very well at a park like Dufferin Grove, not too far from where you are, uh, over the last year helping people get safely housed. But security guards were part of that just in, in order to keep everybody, including people experiencing homelessness, safe. And so I, I, I just am not you know, going to be intimidated, if that's the intent here, nor is the city government, by people who I think no matter what is done, uh, will not be satisfactory to them. Uh, and none of I, them, by the way, give me an ounce of help with respect to the, what I'm trying to do to advocate to the other governments for more support uh, for exactly the kind of supportive housing that we've put in place to help so many of these people with, uh, you know, getting housing and, and, and re- addressing their issues. Well, you yeah, never hear from them. Never hear from them on that all, ever. Well, uh, you know, we, of course, want to help those people. And uh, there's, as I said, no argument here because... I never saw, uh, you know, families, mothers with kids in uh, the park around Lamport Stadium until those encampments were cleared. I don't remember the number of times there were fires and emergency medical situations and other things happening there. Uh, I just is is how is that exactly going to work? And uh, does that play in at all to this move to uh, allow drinking in parks? No, the drinking in parks is an entirely separate issue. And uh, the drinking in parks, look, I've said repeatedly on the record that uh, I don't have a problem with people having a glass of wine or a beer in a park. The problems we have when we have them are with the big parties and people who literally I've seen with my own eyes carrying two or three, two fours of beer into a park. That is not a person having a beer. And so when you go about trying to liberalize or whatever you want to call it, these rules, which I support that we should do something to acknowledge the reality of people having a glass of wine or a beer... You have to do it carefully. You can't do it on the back of an envelope. And you have to make sure you do it in consultation with some of the very same families that we're talking about, you know, who want to be assured that their kids and themselves are going to be you know, peacefully able to use those parks and that we will find ways to deal with washroom questions and other kinds of questions. So I'm not averse uh, to uh, looking at, uh, you know, how we could make it possible for the law to co- to conform to reality, which is a lot of people are having a beer or a glass of wine. I don't have a problem with it. But I just think when you do these things, you have to do them carefully and properly. And, uh, you know, that that is where I would uh, stand on that. And it's not connected to the security guard issue. The security guard issue, you know, relates only to just making sure that some of the, um, you know, episodes and chapters that we saw last year don't repeat themselves and that, you know, the, the principle is maintained that, that encampments are unsafe, they're unhealthy, and they're against the law. And so we can't have those uh, occupying our public parks, which are for the use of everyone. Well, yeah, but what I was asking was if you look at a place like Trinity Bellwoods that's had an encampment issue and then it's also had a party issue. So how would those would those things collide? I don't think so. I think they are separate issues, although you're right that some of those things were happening in the same park. But our objective will be. uh, And by the way, in terms of enforcement against the current regime, Guess how many tickets were issued last year in total in the entire city for people having a drink in a park? Guess, guess, take a guess at how many tickets. You pick uh, a number, any number you want. 20. Three million people with uh, 700 plus parks. 20. Uh, I don't know. Two. Two. Okay. Two tickets. So it's not as if the bylaw people and others are running around ticketing people who are doing this. So this seems to be something where I think the law should be examined, but it does seem to be a solution in search of a problem in the context of it's not like people are being you know, ticketed. I mean, there are people who think more more tickets should have been issued, but, you know, there were two. Okay. Um, moving along to something that in this neighborhood we are getting to be very unhappy with, and I've just noticed this over the past couple of days, and it's impacted our staff. And I remember uh, you promising to coordinate construction, and it's certainly not happening in this neighborhood. And it's Roads are closed to the point where you almost can't get here from there. I mean, I I can quote you the roads that were closed today. Uh, Staff is is late. It kind of doesn't matter when you leave if if both access roads are are closed. Why is there not more coordination? And, And we don't even get kind of notice. Well, there's quite a lot, and I would appreciate it because, look, I can't possibly be on top of when every construction project stops and starts, but we have meetings once a month where we precisely sit with maps in front of us and look at, you know, parallel streets or, as you say, two roads that, you know, lead to a place like where you are and that they shouldn't be both closed at the same time. And if that's gone on where you are, I will look into that because the idea is we're supposed to stagger the construction. And, look, the construction has to happen. I mean, it is water mains that are 150 years old that break. It is, uh, you know, roads that have to be replaced because they're broken down because of our climate. It is transit that's being built. 
these things have to get done. And in past administrations, the way they kept you happier was just not to do them. And that's not right either. And so, but I have tried to coordinate better. And I think we have some successes and sometimes we're not as successful. But if you send me the streets you're talking about, I will look into it and get back to you long before I next appear on your show. I'll get back to you right away. Because, um, and sometimes, you know, roads are dug up because of an emergency, a gas leak, a water main break or something like that. So it wasn't anticipated. You can't plan for those. But I agree with you. It is not satisfactory to have all the roads leading to, say, the Zoomer, you know, radio station all torn up at once. That doesn't make sense. And we were trying to avoid that, but I'm not aware of what's going on exactly in your neighborhood. Okay. Uh, We will get on that right away. Moving along to some good news for the city, and and I do have some questions. There was an announcement earlier this week about the Michelin Guide coming to Toronto. I gather that people were working on that for a long time. Yes. Yes. Um, first of all, was was there any financial incentive to bring them here? Well, I'm not going to be in the position of explaining. It might be best left to Destination Toronto, our tourism marketing organization, the one that's it's, it's at arm's length from the city. And, um, you know, the, the, the fact is that there is an investment that has to be made by the hospitality industry uh, in, uh, you know, having them come and look at the city. Because, I mean, needless to say, Michelin is asked because it's the sort of gold star of, uh, you know, of, of attracting attention to your culinary scene, they're asked to go to every city. And so they have to have an assessment process they go through, which we now have been through. The reason we came to together to make that announcement this week is because they've assessed Toronto, decided it should have a Michelin guide, and now the inspectors are in Toronto going to the restaurants, um, you know, actually, you know, secretly, I guess, uh, you know, examining them and, and, and ranking them or whatever they do, you know, reviewing them. So, um, so the, the Destination Toronto can answer your questions about the investment, but I'll just say to you, this is going to be a huge boost for Toronto's hospitality and restaurant industry, which is fabulous. They've suffered during the pandemic. They need that boost. They should be brought to the attention of the world. And this is one of the best ways to do it. And I'm proud of the fact we're now going to have a Michelin guide, which Toronto should have had a number of years ago. I, I, I first asked the question when I became mayor, and that's how this started. Why don't we have one? Uh, because it's kind of the world standard when it comes to guides to talk about cities and get people to come and visit and invest and create jobs and live. And this is what we want. Okay. Um, that sort of answers the question. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it seems to me that that will have spinoff on the entire industry, not just the people who have Michelin stars. And again, I know it's something that some people don't like, but, um, yeah, well, I don't know why they wouldn't like it, uh, you know, Libby, because I would think that there might be a handful of restaurants at best that will get a star, but the book also reviews a whole bunch of other restaurants, including like excellent neighborhood restaurants. Because if you've used a Michelin guide, and some of your listeners will have, I certainly have in planning trips that our family's taken. There, many of the restaurants that they, that they review are neighborhood sort of holes in the wall that are out of the way. And that's what they want to tell you about is a fabulous place. You can get authentic, really good food. Um, but it is not expensive and it's not a fancy pants restaurant. And that's what this book is best for. And it's going to be a lot of that that's going to be written up in the Toronto Michelin Guide. And I think it's going to be a big boost, not just for the starred restaurants, which will be few and far between, but for all the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I hope you're right. I agree with you, actually. Uh, moving right along. Uh, and here's something that uh, is coming up before, well, it's coming up to a committee first. We're expecting a report. It, it's a big issue for a lot of homeowners and renters trying to enjoy the summer. Leaf blowers. What about banning those really noisy and environmental gas-powered leaf blowers? Well, the uh, group, the staff group that are going to advise the committee on May the 30th are looking at all of that, and they're going to have uh, some things to say. Among other things, I think they might have something to say about the sort of times of the year and the times of the day that leaf blowers can be used, whether they're electric or, or otherwise. Um, and they're also going to have some things to say about how we can toughen up the laws that relate to the modification of car exhaust. We get a lot of complaints about that, too. You know, these noisy motorcycles and cars. And there is there are rules now that presently uh, preclude that uh, from happening, uh, but uh, they're obviously not tough enough because there's still far too many of these noisy cars that race around at night in all parts of the city. And my office gets a lot of complaints about that. So this report will be coming uh, on the uh, at the end of May, 30th of May. And it also is going to include the question of enforcement and how we can apply more bylaw and police resources, knowing they're scarce, uh, to uh, keeping peace and quiet uh, in the city. Uh, because, uh, you know, while people, I think, understand who live in a big city, they're not living in Algonquin Park, but they still have the right to, you know, peaceful enjoyment of their uh, property and so on.
Well, do you have a, a personal view on this? I mean, my understanding is we'll probably get some kind of compromise thing, but there are a lot of people who said, you know, we should just bite the bullet and with a phase in ban these things. Yeah, I think whatever you do, I think over time for a bunch of reasons, including noise, but not limited to that, also including climate change and the emissions that these things make that we should be, uh, you know, phasing them out. But the tougher questions aren't the question of whether you should phase them out. The tougher questions are, uh, you know, over what period of time do you do that? Because people have invested in these things, uh, you know, maybe as early as last summer. And then to be told that somehow if you were told immediately that it was, uh, uh, you know, banned, that's uh, the kind of thing that aggravates people. So as the noise does too, I know. So uh, this is what the report will address and we'll see what it says. I haven't seen it. I mean, I just know the kinds of things that they're grappling with, including this and including the car noise and including the enforcement question that I mentioned. Okay. Uh, We look forward to that report. Final question. Uh, We're in the middle of a provincial election campaign. Your re-election is coming up. So first of all, is there anything that you're really hoping to hear from uh, any of the provincial parties or all of them uh, during this season? Well, I'm a non, I'm nonpartisan. I have been since I've been mayor. I haven't been to a single partisan event, but I, I have written a letter to all of the party leaders, meaning the four uh, major parties, and I have listed for them some important questions that I think the people of the city of Toronto have on their minds, and that includes, uh, uh, you know, it includes uh, first and foremost uh, the shortfall we have from all the pandemic uh, expenditures we were uh, having to make, and the revenue shortfalls we had on transit, and help from uh, the provincial government on that. Uh, secondly, affordable housing, where we need to have. Uh, you know, an absolute assurance that we're going to get the kind of support we need to do what we're doing by way of a significant expansion of affordable housing. And it goes from there to discuss uh, sa- safety and security issues because we have a plan that needs their help in terms of some funding um, and so on. But uh, the, these are the issues I have raised with them, and I've asked them to answer uh, the five pretty straightforward questions that I asked uh, by the 24th of May so that I'll be in a position to comment on those answers uh, before the election. Oh, that sounds interesting. We look forward to hearing about that. Yep. Okay. Mayor John Tory, thanks so much. Always good to talk to you, Libby. Anytime. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. We're taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your money. The markets are taking a beating. Bonds are down. What are we supposed to do to protect our savings? We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we have an important discussion. If you are worried about your savings, your retirement portfolio, and the markets have been taking a beating, and it's not just one asset class. Stocks are down, bonds are down too. What kind of defensive action can you take, especially? If you're older and don't have a long time horizon for making up losses before you need the money. So, numbers with questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I welcome Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletter. Hi, Gordon. How are you? I'm fine, Libby. How are you doing? Oh, I'm 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 fine. Uh, but possibly I'm fine because I, I haven't looked at my portfolio since the, <laughs> in a few days. So I'm happy. Well, that's a good uh, a good plan. Uh, don't look at your portfolio <laughs> if you have a nervous stomach. Uh, however, it's not a very good plan if you um, really want to preserve your assets. And what is a very unique situation? Um, you referred to it uh, in the introduction when you made the comments about everything being down. Bonds are down, stocks are down, real estate looks like it's uh, starting to take a hit. Uh, we, I really haven't seen anything like this in about 40 years. Uh, it really takes me back to um, the early 1980s uh, when we really had a, a situation which is even roughly comparable to what we have today. And what was the resolution back then? Well, the resolution was a couple of things. Um, I actually made one of the best investments of my life at that point in time uh, because what I did when the interest rates went up and bond prices dropped, I bought a whole whack of uh, Government of Canada long-term bonds. And then when the interest rate cycle turned around, which it inevitably will, 
those bonds uh, went back up in price, and I scored a very nice capital gain. But that's not something I would recommend for our listeners to do now um, because it's speculative. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, people don't have a long time horizon. So I think now you need to um, take a very cautious approach, but not a panicky approach. I think what's important is that you presumably have have, uh, a plan already in place and that you stay with that plan, and hopefully that plan involves some combination of um, good blue-chip dividend-paying stocks that are relatively um, shielded from what's going on in the general market. And I'm thinking like stocks like BCE. I'm thinking of the utilities like Fortis and um, Canadian Utilities and Amera. Uh, These companies are very solid and they aren't going to go anywhere. Nobody is going to expect them to... uh, disappear from the scene. They're just going to keep paying their dividends. Price may go up and down a little bit, but you don't worry about it. Uh, I've seen some recommendations uh, saying, you know, now may be the time to put some of your money back into a plain vanilla GICs, and apparently the best interest rates are in some of these new online banks. What do you think of that? Yeah, that, that, that's correct, and I've recommended that to um, my readers of my, newslet- my newsletters. Um, what you're seeing, of course, obviously, is the returns on GICs, uh, which, of course, are protected for uh, capital and interest uh, up to the amount of um, deposit insurance you may have, which uh, if you're with the CDIC or the institution is with the CDIC, would be $100,000. Uh, the interest rates are better. Uh, you're better to do a ladder GIC. That is, you put your money into one-year increments over five years. So 20% of your money goes into one-year GICs, 20% into two-year, 20% into three-year, and so on. So if you have a GIC maturing each year, and if interest rates have moved higher, you can reinvest at a higher rate. That's a much safer route to go right now than go investing in bonds. Bonds uh, have really taken a beating. I haven't seen a bear market like this in bonds in a long time. Uh, I'm going to go through some other advice. I read an interesting column in the Globe and Mail, Rob Carrick, who I think is uh, pretty good. And he also says that if you are heading into retirement or close to retirement or whatever you call it, but, but need some of the money, then make sure that you have liquid money for however long you may need it so you, you're not forced into selling into a really bad market. Yes, and that, that's very good advice. I read Rob's column, uh, and um, he's always a very um, sound uh, person to listen and read and follow. Uh, Rob really doesn't lead his readers astray, and that advice to... Um, have some money in cash uh, to cover two or three years of expenses is, I think, especially useful right now. Uh, it means you don't have to be worried about what's happening in the market. You can just kind of sit back, not fret about the ups and downs from day to day of the Dow going up 500 or the TSX dropping 300. You can just have the money there and you just ride the cycle out. Mm-hmm. And the blue chip stocks that you mentioned, uh, sh- should should people think about buying them when they go down or, or, you know? Well, these are the kind of stocks that are what I call forever stocks. You put them in your portfolio and you keep them. So I wouldn't worry about whether they go up or they go down. If you're interested in stocks that provide good yields and are good, solid companies and they're always going to be there for you, then you buy whenever it's appropriate in terms of money being available and um, your uh, inclinations being such that you're not going to get uh, concerned and uptight about whether the stock goes down 50 cents or a dollar the next day. And uh, do you agree that what we're seeing now is the result of the pandemic? Or is it something deeper than that? I mean, we've been warned for a long time, correction is coming, correction is coming, correction, you know, never quite came. Well, 
partially it's the pandemic. Um, there's there's so many factors which are at work right now. The, the fact that uh, the pandemic has led to a slowdown in um, output and exports from China, uh, which, of course, China was the growth engine of the world for many years, many decades, actually. And that has slowed down. Slowed down. That is also affecting the supply chain. Uh, you hear all this talk about supply chain and uh, companies are uh, not receiving shipments of semiconductors or other vital um, elements in the uh, construction of whatever it is that they're manufacturing. Well, much of that is what's happening in China because China has a zero COVID policy and they're shutting down whole cities. They shut down Shanghai. Uh, they shut down parts of Beijing. And so companies that produce these products are not being able to produce them. And therefore, that's causing the supply chain shortages we're worried about. War in Ukraine is another problem. It's creating agricultural problems and obviously uh, energy problems for Europe. So there's a lot of factors which are coming into play right now, all of which are contributing to the situation we find ourselves in. Okay, I'm going to take a very quick call because we're almost out of time. Uh, Bill in Toronto? Yeah, this this is actually very interesting. So I'm predominantly invested in in blue-chip stocks, a lot of banks, uh, BCE, Enbridge, that kind of thing. And what I've done is I've invested for dividends. I intend to live off the dividends. Um, I've got other stock that's, you know, like semiconductors and stuff like that, which is a small portion of my portfolio. So they're all taking a real beating. But should I really be concerned or just the dividend? I'm still working. So the dividends I've got coming in, I should be putting them into those blue chip stocks. And I also own some property um, up north that I should just hang on to. Okay, uh, I'll let him answer because we're almost out of time. Uh, okay, Gordon, uh, 30-second answer, please. Well, the 30-second answer is yes, hold on to those dividend stocks. Keep adding to them. They will uh, be um, perfect for you over the long over the long haul. Um, your property up north is probably going to appreciate. It may temporarily decline, but it will appreciate over the long term. I would be more concerned. I look at these uh, tech stocks that you have, see whether they're worth holding for the longer term, because that sector has been really hit hit very hard. And so people people might maybe they should sell their uh, tech stocks that were darlings for a while. Well, uh, yes, uh, mind you, they've already taken a big hit. Uh, You have to assess each one individually, uh, because, um, for example, I would not sell Microsoft, but I, I, I might certainly sell Amazon at this point. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, We're really getting close to it. Thank you so much for all that great advice, Gordon. Okay, you're welcome, Libby. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If we couldn't take your call, please call back. I know there's lots of stuff people still want to talk about, and we'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.